Matthew 26, uh, the passage we're going to be reading this morning and studying is on page 986 in your pew Bible. Uh, We're in the middle of a sermon series, uh, a study of Matthew's passion narrative. We started at the beginning of chapter 26 a few weeks ago, and we've been with Jesus in a little town called Bethany outside of Jerusalem, and there he was anointed with oil by a, a woman in the house where he was visiting. Uh, We went from there with Jesus and the disciples to Jerusalem, and we went with them to an upper room in which they observed the Passover meal, and then there Jesus instituted a new memorial meal that we called the Lord's Supper that night. From the upper room, we walked with Jesus and the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, this hillside orchard of olive trees just outside of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, we were with Jesus in the garden as he prayed in great distress. We saw Jesus come out of the garden resolved to do what's necessary for your salvation. We're with Jesus last week as he was arrested, betrayed by Judas, arrested by uh, religious police, and then his mock trial before religious authorities. And this morning, Matthew swings the camera from Jesus just for a moment and puts it right on Peter. He's going to capture our attention this morning, but make no mistake, this is a story where Jesus is the hero. 2008, a new building opened in the city of San Francisco. It's called the Millennium Tower. It's a 58-story condominium, and before they opened the doors, every condo in that building was sold. The penthouse, after renovations, went for $18 million. $18 million and no yard. I cannot process that. Every condo sold, 58 stories tall, everyone happy, living in downtown San Francisco. And then last year, residents got some news. They were told, hey, every every new building settles a bit. This one is not just settling, it's sinking. In fact, in the last few years, it has sunk a total of 16 inches into the ground. Not only has it sunk 16 inches, it's also got a little tilt to it. At the base, it tilts 2 inches And at the top, it tilts 15 inches. Yeah. I paid $18 million for this. (laughs) So as you can imagine, the residents of the Millennium Tower are very upset. Now, the building's safe for occupancy. It's not any threat of just collapsing on other buildings or or people or whatever. People are still living there, but the residents are very upset. they got a huge problem. The building sinking and tilting. It's supposed to sink a little bit more before it finally settles. Uh, and here's another big problem. There's no one to blame. You blame the builders, and the builders say, it's not our fault. We built it to code. We did everything we were supposed to. Everything was signed off the way it was supposed to be uh, checked out. It's probably the city's fault because they're building right next door to this building, and they've disturbed this, oh, this ground, and that could be the reason the building is, is tilting You talk to the city, it's not our fault. It's clearly the builder's fault. You talk to the residents, it sure isn't our fault. We put the money into this. There's no one to blame, and there's no apparent fix. There's things you can do to stabilize it, but you can't exactly just bump that building back to plumb and call it good. There's no easy fix there. They've got a huge problem, no one to blame, no apparent fix. The Bible says you and I have a huge problem. 
the Bible names that problem as sin. Sin is every way in which you and I, we fall short of God's perfect, pure holiness. Sin is the bad things we do. It's the good things we don't do. And in every measure, whether we perceive our sin to be small in amount or we understand it to be large in amount, by every measure, our sin is a lethal problem for us. It is a problem bigger than a sinking skyscraper. But there's a bit of a difference between our problem and the Millennium Tower's problems. We have a big problem, but we know who to blame. I'm to blame for my sin, and and you're to blame for your sin. But the good news is this, there is a fix. There's a fix for our problem, and that comes through Jesus Christ, the one we've sung about this morning. And so today, we turn our focus to Peter, who puts on full display this massive problem that all of us have. We learn about our sin by looking at Peter's sin today. And it's a sad moment. It's really a gut-wrenching moment, this thing that Peter does. But this is not a story, I believe, that's meant to beat us up or to leave us down, but rather it's a story that's meant to lift us and fill us with hope as we turn our eyes to Jesus Christ. So my goal today in preaching this passage, this story about Peter, is for us to take a serious look at our sin but to take a longer look at Jesus who forgives and restores us. This is a morning for spiritual renewal. It might be a morning for spiritual rebirth. If you come in self-loathing or you come in self-righteous, Jesus has something to say to you today. And my hope is that we'll leave here with our hearts full as we've set our sights on Christ once again. So I want to share with you from our passage this morning two confessions that lead to spiritual renewal. Two things all of us need to own, all of us need to live by that will lead us to spiritual renewal. And so I want you to follow along with me as I read. Now the passage we're studying is from verses 65 to 70, excuse me, 69 to 75. But I want us to read a few verses ahead of that. So stay in chapter 26, but I want you to go back to verse 31 with me. And then just go where I point you from there. Verse 31, it's after Jesus and the disciples have had their last meal together. They're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 31, then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now skip down to verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Skip down to verse 65. And the high priest tore his clothes And said of Jesus, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. 
Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hits you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow is with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. So it's a rough story. Really, really rough. But it's a story full of grace and hope. Let me show you in this passage two confessions you and I need to make in order to experience spiritual renewal. First confession, if you're taking notes, is this. Our sin is gross and serious. You can write it in first person singular if you want. My sin is gross and serious. We've got to own our faults here. And this story is all about Peter's sin. I mean, it is on full display. And as we go through each of the denials, the intensity of the sin ratchets up. It's, it's increasing in intensity with every successive denial. And we see that in the vocabulary that Peter uses. Look with me at verse 69. There's the first uh, place where a small servant girl makes this accusation, verse 69, or this observation. She says, you also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about. So Peter's first denial is not a direct denial. He doesn't just out and out say, ah, I don't know him. His first denial is evasive. I don't know what you're talking about. You're not making any sense to me. What, what are you even saying? But the second denial ratchets it up a bit. Look at verse 71. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. There's something different in this second denial. First, it says that he denied it with an oath. In verse 72, what does that mean he denied it with an oath? Probably it means this. He said something along these lines. I swear I don't know this man. Now, anyone who's followed Jesus for any amount of time knows how he feels about oaths. He's talked about it. Way back in a passage we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has told this to his followers. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. There's no need for followers of Jesus who walk in the truth and speak the truth to try and bolster the truth with, I swear. Just speak the truth and that will be enough. But Peter swears, invokes this oath as a way to try and convince people around him of the lie. The third denial is the worst of the three. Verse 73, after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. And then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Uh, his accent gives him away. Uh, a few weeks ago, we had a plumber out to the house to fix a shower drain that was messed up. And he comes up to the house, and I, I go to greet him, and this is all I say. I just say, hey, how are you? My name's Cody. Immediately he goes, 
wow, do you have an accent? <laughs> and I said, have you ever listened to yourself? <laughs> the plumber told me I have an accent. Yeah. So you can imagine how a Boston accent, say in Atlanta, Georgia, would stick out, or a southern accent, I mean real south, not Pennsylvania, like Georgia, Mississippi South, how that sticks out in in this neck of the woods. It does. Something about Peter's speech gives him away, whether it's the way he says the words, the dialect he uses, something about his speech signifies to everyone around him that he's not a local. In this time, when Peter denies it, verse 74 says, he began to call down curses on himself. What does that mean? Probably it means this. He said something along these lines. May God strike me dead if I'm lying. Something like that. He says, I don't know the man. Second denial, third denial, direct. I don't know the man. Not, I don't know Jesus. I don't know the man. Each denial is worse and more intense, not just in the vocabulary, but also in the locations of each denial. It ratchets up the intensity. The first denial is in the courtyard, which means this. Caiaphas has a compound. He has a gated compound. His house is inside the compound. You would walk through the gate into this courtyard area. So when Peter's in the courtyard, that means he's in the front yard. He's by the porch. He's on the inside of Caiaphas's territory, and his first denial is in the courtyard. His second denial is at the gate to the courtyard. His third denial seems to be in the same location, if not outside the gate. With every denial, Peter gets further and further away from Jesus. Something about Peter's posture speaks to the intensity of the denials as well. The first denial, he is seated in the courtyard. Second denial, he has walked to the gate. Third denial, he seems to be standing outside the gate. Sitting, walking, standing, Peter denies Jesus in every posture. It's an awful scene. It seems to me that that we ought to have an emotional response to Peter's denials of Jesus. I, I, I I just don't know how we read this without being affected by it in some measure. Jesus is being mistreated inside this building, the other side of the wall from where Peter is, roughly. And here's Peter utterly abandoning Jesus in this moment. Jesus is inside taking the blows and the shame. Peter's outside denying any knowledge of Jesus getting further and further away from him. Uh, The same Peter who said he would lay down his life for Jesus, the same Peter who wildly swung his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, now waffles in the face of a question from a little slave girl. It's an awful scene. You and I may be inclined to read this and think to ourselves, man, I'm so glad I've never done anything anything as horrible as Peter's denial of Christ. And if that's the way we read this, I think we read this wrong. I don't believe that Matthew records this account for us to give us an example of the worst sin ever, but rather to show us the nature of all sin. Peter's denials of Christ here are not extraordinary. They are par for the course for all sinners, everyone in this room. So that may be a struggle for us to own 
our sinfulness, to, to really say, well, okay, I'm, I'm reflected in Peter. And the reason that's difficult for us is because our self-assessments are always very positive. We, we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. But we might say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I'm a civilized sinner, or I'm, I'm a clean sinner, or I have good intentions. Yes, I know I've done wrong things, but I've, I've meant to do well, and there are things that I do well. I care for my neighbors. I care about my community. I'm civically active. I donate to the ASPCA. Look, I'm patriotic. I love our country. I come to church. I came to church today. I've got this religious track record. There's all these things we would point to and say, here are the reasons why my sin is just not as bad. And we make such a huge, profound mistake. When you and I try to justify our sin, try to clean it up on our own, we're like the adulterous husband who defends himself by saying, well, at least I mowed the yard. There's no justification for our sin against God. Willful sin, accidental sin, doesn't matter. All sin against God, there's no defense of it for you and I. The verdict against us is right and true. The verdict is settled. We are guilty of sinning against God's perfect holiness. Every single one of us were reflected in Peter's sin this morning. Our sin is gross and our sin is serious. And it wouldn't take us very long in introspection to be able to identify our heinous sin. We carry in our hearts racism. We hate people, and Jesus has said, if you hate them, it's the same as committing murder. We have been forgiven much, but we refuse to give forgiveness. We've been shown much mercy, we refuse to show mercy. We lust, and Jesus says that's the same as committing adultery. We have served our appetites through and through. We've made gods out of so many little things, including our tiny piles of money. All these things we've ascribed value to far above and beyond the God of creation, the God who's been so gracious and merciful to us. God has been good, He's been gracious, and yet you and I were desperate sinners. And you have to own that. If there's going to be any spiritual renewal or spiritual rebirth, we have to own the bad news. That my sin is my sin, and it is the only reason I'm separated from God, and there's not one single thing I can do to change that. I'm dead in my sin. We're not dying in sin. We're dead already in that sin. Now, that's heavy. Holiday weekend, you come to church, you get something heavy like that, probably not what you're expecting. But look, this is, not, this is not the end of the story. I don't think this passage is here just to beat us up. Rather, I think it's here to point us to the hope that's to be found in Jesus Christ. So if we're going to have spiritual renewal this morning, our first confession is, my sin is gross and serious, but there's a second beautiful confession, and it is this, our Savior is gracious and loving. Put it in first person singular. My Savior is gracious and loving. 
So how can we speak of grace in this scene? I mean, it's just, it's all Peter messing up the whole time. Where's the grace? Look, Jesus is far more present than you may realize. Uh, Three instances of Christ's grace in this I would point out to you very quickly. First of all, there's grace in that Jesus predicted Peter's denials. And then he kept Peter close to him. Jesus told Peter plainly, like before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Put yourself in Jesus' place. You have to deliver this news to a friend of yours, a close friend. You're going to deny me three times. What's the next line? What do you say after that? You're going to deny me three times tonight. What do you say next? Get behind me, Satan. How could you? I can't believe you're going to do this to me. I don't care what you say. You're going to fail. What's the next line you say? Something negative. That's me. So I'm just going to project my experience on all of humanity and assume we're all in the same boat. If I know someone's going to deny me three times, I'm going to follow up with some harsh word. But look at Jesus' next words to Peter. They're in verse 75. Excuse me, they're not in verse 75. Uh, Jesus' next words to Peter are found in verse 37. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus has said this, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Now come pray with me. Jesus keeps Peter close to him. Doesn't cast him out. Doesn't shove him away. He keeps Peter close. Peter, you're going to deny me. Come pray with me. Here's the grace of Jesus Christ to a sinner like Peter. There's another picture of Christ's grace towards Peter in this passage. Grace in that Jesus has predicted Peter's denials, and that prediction leads to Peter's remorse and repentance. Look at verse 75, the last verse of the chapter. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And what does he do? He went outside and wept bitterly. So Jesus' prediction of Peter's denials prompts the memory at the fulfillment of that prediction, and that memory leads Peter to go outside and weep bitterly. It leads him to godly remorse. How do we know Peter's weeping is godly remorse? How can we put that uh, flavor to it. Uh, well, we've got to look a bit beyond our current passage, but here's how we know Peter's remorse is a godly remorse. Three days later, Resurrection Sunday, he's found with the disciples. Peter doesn't deny Jesus and then hop a boat to Tarshish. He stays put. He goes back to the disciples. He returns to his identity as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew doesn't name Peter again in his gospel after this episode. We don't see Peter's name again through the rest of Matthew's gospel. But Peter does show up again at the end of the gospel. He's with the other disciples when they go to meet with Jesus on a mountain in Galilee where he gives them his final instructions. So Peter's remorse is a godly remorse because it eventually leads him to turn back to his identity as a follower of Jesus, and he rejoins with the group of the disciples. One more sure sign of Christ's grace for Peter in this passage is while Peter is outside denying Jesus, Jesus is inside owning his identity and will do whatever it takes to go to the cross. 
Christ's grace is seen in that he dies for sinners like Peter, like me, and like you. So Peter's outside denying Christ's identity. Jesus is inside owning his identity. Peter is fleeing for his own safety. Jesus stays put and absorbs the shame and the abuse of his accusers. Jesus is called a false prophet. The whole time, Peter is outside fulfilling the prophecy that Jesus has already made about his denials. Jesus goes to the cross for sinners like us. He didn't come to save the healthy He came to save sick people like you and I, people like Peter who deny him over and over, people like you and I who know our sins so well. And why does he do this? Why will Jesus die for sinners? Because he loves you. This is what we sang this morning and what we read in God's word this morning. It's his great love for us that leads him to the cross. You know, earlier we talked about how hard it can be for us sometimes to own our sin We've got to be convinced of the bad news. There's another side to that coin, though. The other side of that coin is sometimes we've got to be convinced of our value to God. Maybe you know your sin all too well, and you just, every morning you look in the mirror, you define yourself by your failures. And you may have other people that do that for you as well. And you know what the truth might be? You, you may have made mistakes that deserve that kind of reputation, but when God looks at you, He looks on you with love. Not disappointment, not failure. He looks at you as someone made in his image, someone he's reached out to in grace time and time again, someone he loves and he's ready to forgive and restore and renew. You may think to yourself, there's no way. There's no way God could love me in this way. I've messed up so much, and I know myself I'm going to mess up again. But here's the truth. He loved a denier like Peter. He loved Thomas who doubted him. He loved the other disciples who abandoned him. He loved Moses who flat out said no to him. He loved David who indulged his flesh. He loved Esther who feared doing the right thing, and he loves you. He loves you. One of my favorite writers, a guy named Brennan Manning, he said this. He said, God loves us as we are, not as we should be, because none of us are as we should be. So all of your sin, all the muck, all the embarrassment, all the shame, he knows all of that, and he loves you. And he doesn't expect you to get cleaned up first before you come to the cross for forgiveness, for salvation, renewal. He doesn't expect you to achieve some certain level of knowledge and discipleship before the benefits of the cross are applied to your soul. He just wants you to come. That's it. He just wants you to come. As you are, in your mess, broken, beat down, deluded, or self-aware, he wants you to come. And there you're going to find mercy, forgiveness, and transformation. Do you know what You know what Jesus does with sinners like us and sinners like Peter? Well, if we were to fast forward a bit, say to Acts chapter 2, we'll find Peter a transformed man. Peter the denier has become Peter the proclaimer. And in the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, he preaches boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And on that day, some 3,000 people come to faith alone in Jesus Christ. Peter, who crumbled before the the questions of a little servant girl, Acts chapter 2, by the grace of Jesus Christ, has become a bold witness and a father for the church. 
Now, Peter doesn't go on with a perfect track record. Far from it. The old Peter rears his head time and time again. But guess what? Every time he's met with God's grace, and so are you, and so am I, God's grace is abundant and never runs out for us. Now, did you know that this story about Peter and his denials, it's told in all four Gospels? All four of them. And why do you think that is? Is it a smear campaign against Peter? The disciples are trying to, or the other, excuse me, the other Bible writers are trying to keep him humble? Is that part of what this is? I, I don't think so at all. I don't think this is a smear campaign against Peter. Rather, I think this story is repeated to speak hope into our lives. So if you read the Gospel of Matthew and you read about Peter, you'll see the grace of Christ applied. And because our memories are short, we'll then go to the next book of the Bible, Mark, and we'll read about Peter's denials and we'll see the grace and the love of Christ at the cross. And we'll forget again and then we'll read Luke and we'll see Peter's denials and Christ's love. And in John, it's Christ's love again that restores Peter and brings him back into fellowship. This is a story that highlights the grace and love of Jesus Christ for people like us. Hot messes, failures, the outcasts, the outsiders, the people who never get it right, the people who no one believes in, those people who are broken by addiction and heartache and doubt and mistakes, you are loved by God and he will radically transform your life when you walk with Jesus Christ. He calls us to believe, calls us to faith in the Christ that laid down his life. So in our study of Peter's denials this morning, we're called to make two confessions, two simple confessions. I'm a sinner, and Christ is my Savior. My sin is gross and serious. Christ is gracious and loving. This story makes us look inward, and then it makes us look upward to the Christ who will rescue us. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young, and then my three brothers and I were raised by our dad. And our family car was a 1990 Ford Mustang GT. What? That's not a family car, unless you're raised by Don Busby. And so this car, it was so fast, so fast. And uh, it was juiced up a little bit, and we... We had this special muffler on the back. These mufflers called glass packs, and so it just gave the car this low growl. It, when it sat at idle, it was just rah, 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 rah. And so when, when I started driving, that, that was the car I would drive. And my dad told it, we knew the threat. If you get a speeding ticket, I will destroy your face, number one. Number two, <laughs> uh, you're off... My insurance. You're going to have to pay your own insurance, and that's it. So drive the car, go for it. The day you get busted, the hammer's going to fall. So I was, I was a senior in high school, and uh, I was out one night running an errand, and I was with two of my brothers were with me. We were in the Mustang, and we're on this long, dark two-lane road, no cars on it ever, but there's this railroad track that crossed it, and if you hit it, going the right speed, you wouldn't go airborne, but you, you get enough rise to make your tummy tickle, okay? So we hit those, oh! <laughs> we're going, and then all of a sudden, it was Christmas in my rearview mirror. <laughs> and I, I was a believer, at, I was a believer then, and so immediately I went into, oh Jesus mode, right? Oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus. 
And uh, my two brothers just went into O mode. Oh! So get pulled over. The police officer was very kind and uh, gave me a ticket for less than what I was speeding. I was shaking so bad I could hardly sign the ticket because I, I knew uh, I had to face my dad. Five foot, eight inches of mustachioed fury. I had to face my dad. So, uh, and, and my brothers are, are going to ensure I face my dad. I can't, can't buy them off. Uh, so I just told them, I'll, when we get in, don't say anything. I'll talk to dad. And uh, one brother was like, you're so dead. Uh, can I have your tapes after you're dead? Yeah, you can, because I am, I'm about to die. Uh, so we go in the house, and there's my dad, and I walk up to him, and I handed him the ticket. And uh, he looks at it, and then I, I tell the story, and he doesn't, he doesn't say anything. He just sits there listening. And, uh, and I finish the story, and he looks up at me. And he reached up, and he grabbed me by both ears like this. And I thought, this is the end of my life. He's going to tear my head clean off. Um, but he grabbed me, and he pulled me down, and he kissed me on the forehead. And uh, he said, uh, are you okay? And, and it was ugly cry time. Right? I was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm okay. And he said, uh, are you done speeding in my car? <laughs> yes, I am. And he said, all right, that's it. And he continued to keep me on his insurance and to pay for me, but it was a beautiful moment of grace, many that I've experienced from the hands of my dad, who, have shown, shown, who has shown me the grace of Jesus Christ over and over again. But I was guilty. I deserved punishment. And I had to pay my own ticket, all right? His grace wasn't that great. <laughs> <laughs> But I was just glad to have a bed to sleep in and food to eat. Uh, but I, I was guilty, straight up. There was no denying it. Uh, but my dad gave me grace that I didn't deserve. Why? Because he loved me. I'm, I'm his son. He's my father. He's going to take care of me. If, if Don Busby will love me in that way, won't our Heavenly Father love us in a greater way? To show us grace though we are dead and guilty in our sin, to lead us in restoration, to give us new life and a new walk, and not because we've earned it, not because we've achieved it, but just because that's the kind of heavenly Father He is to give us this grace. And so He loves you. If you're here this morning and, and you're on your spiritual journey, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ. I hope you've listened well this morning because we've talked about you and we've talked about him, every one of us dead in our sin, every one of us given the opportunity this morning to say yes to Jesus Christ. And I would encourage you to do just that. If you were to come and say, Cody, what do I got to do to be saved? I would tell you it's already been done. When God the Son came to us and then he goes to this cross he did what was necessary for you to be saved. He died your death for your sin. Three days later, he rose from the dead. This is how we know his death is not like every other death of every other person on planet Earth because he is very God. 100% God, 100% man. Jesus Christ loves you this much. He laid his life down on the cross for you. 
Three days later, he rose from the dead, and that means that if you will believe in him, trust in him, turn from your sin and turn to Christ, you're going to be saved once and for all. You will always be his child. Nothing will change that. And it could be this morning you're already a follower of Jesus Christ, but you've been beat up lately. Sin's been having its way. Christ calls you to trust in him again for renewal, for strength, for transformation, for greater sanctification. I think Peter does the same thing as well. You know, Peter wrote a letter to you to encourage you to walk with Christ and to love Him. And here's an excerpt from Peter's letter to you. He says this, Church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so again today, let us come and receive the mercy of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me, please? Have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion Blot out our transgressions. Wash away all our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is always before us. It's against you and you only we have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and you're justified when you judge. Surely we were sinful at birth, sinful from the time our mothers conceived us. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach us wisdom in the inmost place. Father, cleanse us with hyssop and we'll be clean. Wash us and we'll be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from our sins and blot out all our iniquity. Create in us a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit to sustain us. Lord, you do not delight in sacrifice, or we would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Lord, thank you for meeting us here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.